It is Tuesday, December 12th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, how much authority does the Arkansas State Library Board have? About half of our funding for this office comes through state aid, which is determined by the State Library Board. So it, it has a very direct impact on the work that we do. Plus, Scrooge, Marley, and Cratchit back on stage. The biographical past of Scrooge, you see that, you know, he's alone in the schoolhouse. He hasn't, he can't come home for Christmas. He's alone. And Radio Theater in Eureka Springs. There's no props, there's sound effects, that's it. It's just straight reading. But there's something about doing it live where the audience is also a character. Before all of that, the news this hour from NPR. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, December 12, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead today, a radio story about radio stories. Kyle spoke with members of the Eureka Springs Theater Company about a pair of radio dramas they will be performing for the holiday season. That's in our second half hour. First today, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders recently announced two new appointments to the Arkansas State Library Board. One of those appointments is former State Senator Jason Rapert, who's been vocal about his concerns that libraries in Arkansas are providing minors with pornographic material, as well as, quote, woke ideological ideation. But what authority does the Arkansas State Library Board have? And how does it impact your neighborhood library? Matthew brings us this report. If you ask April Griffith what the typical workday looks like as the regional library administrator for the Carroll and Madison Library System... She'll ponder for a moment and instead tell you what she's done so far this week. Monday, I was over in Berryville teaching um, a class on digital literacy. Um, We were going over computer basics, and that's part of our system's initiative to help close that digital divide and, and connect people with the skills they need to navigate so much of modern life from taxes to Um, applying for jobs or any other types of services. I think a lot of government agencies are moving fully to online platforms, but libraries then are kind of tasked with helping people how to navigate even just using a computer. On Tuesday, she drove to all six libraries in the Bi-County library system. To sort of help deliver the books, our six libraries share um, their collections with one another to provide greater access to our community members. So if someone at the Berryville Library is looking for a book that's currently housed at the Eureka Springs Library, Griffith delivers it herself. When I do that, I, I stop at the different libraries. I talk to the employees and staff and help provide feedback on any questions they may have or um, sort of give them ideas about library best practices. We spoke on a Wednesday. She started her morning facilitating a storytime program. And after our phone call, had plans to spend more time on the phone and on email. Talking to reps from digital platforms. I'm talking to other librarians via email. My job is a little bit 
less face-to-face with the public nowadays. It's a lot more about administrative important tasks, but um, running reports and, and seeing how, how our libraries are performing and, and what they're doing. Yeah, as you were reading through that list, I I was imagining what a job description looks like for your job, and it sounds like the one and only bullet point is other duties as assigned. (laughs) That's a big part of it, for sure, yeah. Griffith says a major source of funding for her library system comes from the Arkansas State Library Board. The board provides state aid for these six libraries so they can have greater access to resources. One way they do that is through our integrated library system software. Every library has one of these. They're quite costly. And we, as a system, pay for that with help from funds through state aid. The State Library Board determines how much funding libraries throughout the state receive. About half of our funding for this office comes through state aid, which is determined by the State Library Board. So it it has a very direct impact on the work that we do. The Arkansas State Library Board meets quarterly at the Arkansas State Library in downtown Little Rock. The meetings typically consist of, as Griffith mentioned, approval of state aid. In the minutes of these quarterly meetings, which you can find online, a document lays out the standards for state and public libraries. It includes details about how they are organized, that they must provide library services for all residents, finances, and much more. As long as a public library abides by these standards, they qualify for state aid. One of the seven members of the board is Joanne Campbell. I reached out to Campbell for an interview for this reporting, but she declined a recorded interview for the radio. She did, however, provide some details about what her experience has been on the board. Campbell is from Fort Smith and says she served for several years on the Fort Smith Public Library Board in the late 1990s and into the 2000s. The library saw major expansion during her time on the Fort Smith Board, including the addition of three branches. Campbell says she eventually applied for appointment to the state board with support from her local state senator. And in 2011, she was appointed by then-Governor Mike Beebe and then later reappointed by Governor Asa Hutchinson at the end of her seven-year term in 2018. In addition to a seven-member board, the Arkansas State Librarian also attends and offers regular notes and information at these meetings. Jennifer Chilcote has served as the Arkansas State Librarian since 2018. I reached out to Chilcote to discuss the work that goes into being the state librarian and how she interacts with local libraries and librarians for this reporting. Kimberly Mundell, the director of communications for the Arkansas Department of Education, responded to my email and denied my request for an interview with Chilcote and instead pointed me to the Arkansas State Library website. Appointments to the state library board, and most every board for that matter, are not confirmed until the Arkansas Senate votes to approve them. We generally get a list of appointments um, maybe two weeks to a week and a half before we are set to vote whether or not to confirm. That's Greg Ladding, state senator for District 30, representing Fayetteville. So there's very little vetting on the Senate side that actually happens, but we do have the responsibility of confirming. Um, And there's a committee that they have to go through first before they go to the full Senate. Uh, But generally, I myself and and the full Senate take the position that a governor should generally be allowed to pick the people they want and that the Senate should only intervene in the cases of clear uh, conflict or controversy. 
And from your vantage points, that's what's happening with one specific appointment this year. Right. Governor Sanders has decided to appoint former state Senator Jason Rapert of Conway, uh, or Bigelow, actually, near Conway, to the Arkansas State Library Board. That is, (laughs) this will be the first time I've ever voted no on a gubernatorial appointment. Um, And it's not just that he was a Republican and I'm a Democrat. Uh, Republican Senator Brian King from over in Green Forest has also publicly stated his opposition. Jason made uh, a few friends in the Senate during his time in the legislature. And so I imagine there are a number of senators who aren't necessarily wild about the appointment. It'll just be a matter of whether or not they want to show the governor deference. As a senator, he says he should only object if he sees a clear conflict. Given what I know about my former colleague, there are a number of boards and commissions that would have made much more sense. It's my understanding that he raised cattle, so why not put him on the Livestock and Poultry Commission? Uh, it's my understanding that he has a financial background. He could have put, been put on the board of uh, public accountancy. He and I also work together on fracking legislation because he's right there in the heart of uh, the Fayetteville Shale. Uh, so you know, put him on the Oil and Gas Commission. By putting him on the Arkansas State Library Board, where to my knowledge he has absolutely no background in libraries, uh, it just seems like a direct... Uh, provocation, that they are, as we've sort of seen libraries become uh, targets, um, that this is just one more step in that direction, that she's putting somebody who's going to be actively hostile toward libraries on the board that's in charge of, of overseeing them. Rapert was a member of the Arkansas State Senate from 2011 until he left office in 2023. He ran for lieutenant governor in 2022, garnering 14% of the vote in the Republican primary. Rapert founded the National Association of Christian Lawmakers in 2019 and has proudly called himself a Christian nationalist on his daily Facebook live show called Save the Nation. In a recent interview on 4029 News, Rapert said he agrees with Governor Sanders' stance that libraries in Arkansas should not have inappropriate material within reach of children. And I think that many people in the state of Arkansas have common sense. You don't want minor children having access to pornographic material. And if you've ever picked up some of these books that have found their way ways onto bookshelves in public libraries, as well as even our school libraries, teachers and parents have been appalled at the fact that there has been truly pornographic depictions in those those books. I would say that in all the libraries I've been, all the time I've spent in the Springdale and the Fable Library, I've never once come across pornography. Senator Greg Letting again. These, you know, certainly there are materials in these uh, buildings that I might not agree with. I don't think anything that Tom Clancy wrote after Without Remorse should be on the shelves. I think libraries should have multiple copies of everything Elmore Leonard ever wrote. But, you know, they're, they're places that they're working with the resources they've got. They're trying to provide information uh, for uh, as many issues and areas as possible. It's not really a librarian's role to decide what's appropriate for me. Um, that's really on parents. Um, but I would say that libraries are such incredible resources, and so many Arkansans depend on them. And for politicians to politicize them and start you know, trying to ban books or throw librarians in prison, I just don't think is what most Arkansans want. Act 372 was passed by the legislature earlier this year, which aims to ban or relocate books deemed obscene from being available in public libraries in Arkansas. The law is currently held up in court by the Western District of Arkansas and has not been put in place at this time. Rapert has said he wants any library who is involved in the lawsuit to not be able to receive state aid. But... According to the library board's current standards, as mentioned earlier, that is not a valid reason to revoke a library's funding. One of those libraries is in Eureka Springs, which is a part of the system 
April Griffith works in. If you had an opportunity to talk to Jason Raper yourself and uh, he, he made a visit to your libraries, what would you what would you tell him or what would you show him about your libraries? Well, it would be interesting, right? We've got a lot of really wonderful libraries. And one of the, the things that is interesting is that one of our libraries is working on a uh, campaign to build a new building and they're almost there. And it, this is a lot of their funding has come from just local people donating. They're very close to um, raising the amount of money they need to break ground and, and start construction. And this has been a, a several years long process, but I think their goal was to raise three and a half million dollars. And I just am blown away at how much this community cared. The individuals of the community cared so much and support their library so much that they made it happen. It's strong and it's important work. So if he visited one of the libraries, he might not see it. He might see some of the other things we do. I'd love to show him some of our um, cognitive care kits. We, you know, receive grant funding to put together these kits to help uh, caregivers who are taking care of folks who are living with dementia, living with Parkinson's disease, living with Alzheimer's. And there are these kits to help engage with those folks in a meaningful way. We are constantly, again, working with these very limited budgets to provide solutions where we see that there are challenges that our communities face to try and help make their lives better. And I think there's a number of ways in which we do that. And that's what I'd want. I'd want him to come to a story time program and see the kids and the, the young parents connecting and, again, meeting and making community there. Griffith says there is so much important work that her libraries are doing, and something as small as some books that people take issue with should not be given such import. I think it's been blown completely out of proportion what these books mean versus the work that we're doing that that something that small really shouldn't have such an outsized influence to be threatening the funding of our organizations. Joanne Campbell, a board member who was first nominated by Governor Mike Beebe, a Democrat, and then reappointed by Governor Asa Hutchinson, a Republican, tells a story of a fellow board member. He described himself as a yellow dog Democrat an early 1900s phrase that was used to describe voters in the South who would tell people they would vote for a yellow dog before they'd vote for a Republican. Campbell says her colleague was worried he wouldn't get reappointed now that a Republican was in office. He was indeed reappointed, but passed away before his second term expired. Senator Letting, a Democrat and the Senate minority leader, says librarians have allies in the legislature. And right now, we might be outnumbered. Um, you know, we'll see what happens when the, when the vote comes. But uh, you do have people who are working in your interest. And I do think, as we have seen, you know, eventually some of these, these cultural wars uh, that a few of my colleagues have launched, we've eventually seen those receded. Um, and I think, hopefully, that's going to be the case with this one. They'll eventually find something else to move on to, or they'll decide to actually focus on real issues like addressing hunger and health care and education, rather than constantly seeking out these headline-grabbing um, and, and divisive issues. What would you say to Jason Rapert if, say, the Arkansas state legislature worked similar to the, the federal system where he had to sit in front of a panel of folks and, and you had an opportunity to ask him a question? 
Uh, I would ask him to more fully explain this agenda that he stated. I think, again, that's one more giant red flag here. Uh, He doesn't seem like he's willing to come in and be like an impartial uh, person who's just going to make sure that libraries are getting the resources that they need. He really does seem to be coming in with this personal agenda. Um, And why do you think that that is necessary for this position? Why do you think that is good? Why do you think that is going to, or what do you think that is going to do to help libraries and their Arkansans who depend on them? Because Arkansans do depend on libraries. They are a vital resource. Unfortunately, I do think a lot of my colleagues still have this idea that it is just a place where uh, you go to get a book. Uh, I actually had a Republican colleague of mine once say, everything's online now. Why do we need a library? It just really alarmed me. But I just asked uh, my former colleague to, to just more fully explain what it is he intends to do with this role. The Arkansas Senate will vote on more than 90 gubernatorial appointments, including the two for State Library Board, this Friday. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead this hour, Christmas on stage. T2's 2023 production of A Christmas Carol continues through Christmas Eve. Those two ghosts and the stakes that they have in changing this guy from a lifetime of, you know, miserliness and, you know, sadness, really, into this joyous place. And a new theater company in Eureka Springs is conducting two nights of holiday audio cheer. The idea of just the community coming together and doing something different, it's not quite a play, so that fourth wall isn't really there. That's yet to come on today's Ozarks at Large. Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin has rejected the language of a proposed amendment aiming to enshrine the Freedom of Information Act into the state constitution. In an opinion released yesterday, Griffin says the proposed text lacks clarity regarding the meaning of key terms. He says terms such as government transparency and public record are not clearly defined. He also suggests the word transparency in the ballot title could be grounds for rejection of the title. Arkansas Citizens for Transparency is the ballot question committee supporting this amendment. In a press release responding to the attorney general's opinion, they said they are, quote, greatly perplexed. They say nobody of any party was confused by what government transparency means and that no one has viewed this as a partisan issue. They asked Griffin, quote, which party opposes government transparency? They go on to say the drafting committee will take any and all appropriate action necessary to remedy the amendment for resubmission. This is Ozarks at Large. Theater Squared's A Christmas Carol is back on stage at T2 for another trip through Scrooge's past, present, and future. This is the fourth time T2 has staged a full cast version of Dickens' classic. There was a two-actor Christmas Carol during the pandemic. The production is an adaptation of Charles Dickens' work by Bob Ford and Amy Herzberg, T2's artistic director and associate artistic director, respectively. Last week, Amy and Bob came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, and while here I asked them why they think the story has not just endured, but thrived since first being published 180 years ago. There's something uh, magical about, I think, 
how dark Dickens goes mm-hmm. with uh, th- this ghost who's been wandering of his partner Marley, who's been wandering around in the afterlife in chains, and you know comes to visit this really awful person. It just it's so dark, and then the the radical turn that happens, which is completely believable because of what he goes through with the three other ghosts after Marley, I think that that's got to be part of it, right, Amy? I, the the total uh, the complete flip that happens and how um, that uh, confirmation or affirmation that yes, you can change, you can, you can change your life, you know. I think that one of the images that really sticks out to me are the chains that Marley appears in and this idea that we're all we all have chains or to quote a, a you know show from last year we all have stones in our pockets that weigh us down and uh, we do not need to be defined by those that there are ways forward to sort of observe that and um, move forward with our lives in a really positive way and I think that that is a, a really touching story also, when you kind of look at what seems to be the biographical past of Scrooge, you see that, you know, he's alone in the schoolhouse. He hasn't, he can't come home for Christmas. He's alone. And you see that there was a really difficult relationship between his father and, and Scrooge. And uh, so there are sort of reasons that the beginnings of these chains were built. And then he kind of took it in a terrible direction. I think that... The idea that we have choice and that we have hope um, and chances in our future is really meaningful uh, to all of us because we all have those chains and those stones. The fourth um, production with the full cast, but it changes every time. You have different directors. There's different casts. So for people who maybe have seen every production, there there are differences, aren't there? There absolutely are, and our director for this year, Dexter Singleton, um, who's terrific, brought in all kinds of really invigorating ideas that are just joyful and really engaging for the audience in a whole new way. We also uh, changed the, uh, the one of the main characters is the boy who a, the, a librarian is telling the story to. Right. And um, the boy is now the girl. Mm. And that's had a really fun uh, impact and ripple effect on on, uh, on the story. You mentioned the set, which is so gorgeous. Uh, that's the set that we've come to love over the last few years? Absolutely. Those books Same. And, yep. yeah. it's all It's all there. They've got the uh, you know, remember that uh, that sliding ladder, that library ladder. Mm-hmm. They've got they've perfected that. So it used to be a little every now and then weren't sure whether it was going to make it over this one ridge, and they've we've we've got it down. So yeah, yeah, same. It, it is every time I see that set go up, I just I marvel that that was the was that the third show in our new space or the second show. It was one of the early ones. It was ones. one of the early yeah. ones. It was, yeah, and it was just uh, really, you know, taking advantage of the size of that space, of that stage. As creative people, who do you think is the most f- fun character to portray in this? I mean, because Scrooge gets to go through that metamorphosis, that, that you know, of, of personality. 
But there were so many interesting characters. If you could play one, who would you want to play? Maybe present. Ghost mm. of Christmas present. I the two ghosts that um, the the third ghost, of course, is just you know it doesn't have any words. But right. those two ghosts and the stakes that they have uh, in changing this guy um, from a lifetime of you know miserliness and you know sadness really into this joyous place. The challenge of that. Um, for an actor is just, you know, really, really fun. But uh, and the ghost of present is just, you know, it, he, he is Mr. You know, he's King Joy, King Delight. And um, that, would be, that would be really fun. you have a preference? Well, I mean, Scrooge really is the number one because what that asks of an actor to take a heart, to invite into your heart the idea of um, the sadness that Bob just referred to, covering that over with sort of an iciness to keep people uh, at distance, you know, and then the melting of that heart or because the that heart underneath warms so much that it melts that ice. What a remarkable distance that that person who plays that has to travel. Um, but that said, it's funny, but there is this tiny character that I also just adore. Um, it's Caroline uh, in this uh, version, mm. Caroline mm. Heaps. And this is – it's the shortest little scene, and, and I love it. It is when um, uh, Scrooge wants to uh, see – an emotion that is caused by the death of the man who he suspects is him, but hasn't, you know, quite given over to yet. Um, and there is this uh, couple that has owed money to um, Scrooge's business, and uh, Scrooge was going to foreclose on them and kind of ruin everything in their lives. And um, the the husband has gone to beg. To gone to Scrooge's office to to beg for more time, only to learn that Scrooge has died. And as soon as he comes back home, uh, she's like, "What is it? Is the, is the news good or bad?" And he's like, "Bad, good." You know, he's not sure how to say it. And he finally tells her that Scrooge has died, and she screams, "Oh, thank goodness!" And then she's like, "Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, God forgive me, but oh, thank goodness." And. I love all of the challenges of that tiny little role. And one of the things that um, uh, we imagined in, because Bob and I did the adaptation uh, that we've been putting on these these past years, and one of the things that we wanted to do was point up that particular uh relationship in that particular scene. And so we added into the first counting house, the Scrooge and uh, Bob Cratchit scene, that uh, Scrooge asks for the foreclosure papers from Cratchit and for that particular couple so that when we see them in that tiny little scene, we're like, oh, my gosh, it's the couple that he was going to foreclose on earlier in the day. And then we added into the ending scene that he asks for that foreclosure and then he rips it up. <laughs> and so uh, maybe that was just because I love that scene so much and love that little character and all the things she has to go through in this, you know, less than 60 seconds. Um, but uh, we've kind of tried to elevate that particular story in our version. 
is Dickens difficult to get from the page to the stage? Because I have a very difficult relationship with Dickens because it seems can be dense. Mm. And, and there's the time yeah. element, right? It wasn't written for 2023 eyes or ears. Does, does getting it into three dimensions present any sort of challenge? Well, you know, the, first of all, what is not challenging is his, his dialogue mm. is absolutely amazing. It is, it's, it's like he's writing for the stage. And yeah, you can and, – and then if you're – when you're adapting, you get to pare down and edit and pull out a couple of phrases and, you know, well, that, that description doesn't need the fourth metaphor. Let's pull out a couple of them, but still leaving this amazing dialogue. What the challenge for us – and we had the same thing when we did Great Expectations a few years ago <laughs> – is that Dickens is known for this gorgeous descriptive language, which, yes – can for a contemporary reader go on a bit, you know, but there's no arguing that it's beautiful and that you got, you know, the first line of this script is, you know, Marley script. <laughs> this novelist, <laughs> Marley was dead yes. to begin with. Um, and that is, you know, you have to have that line in the play. Amy and I have a, a little, we, whenever possible, we basically have a thing about narrating to the audience. And in order to the challenge, so the challenge is how do you get this gorgeous descriptive language um, and also which we associate with, you know, with uh, Christmas Carol, how do you get that into the story, in, onto the stage without it being direct to the audience address? Which is why, how we came up with, and in this particular case, the solution was Oh, this librarian has a need to read this story mm. to this left-behind child. So it all happens behind the fourth wall. So we get a lot of that really great descriptive language in there, including, you know, not descriptive, but including Marley was dead. Um, but it's – you never – it's always activated. There's always a need behind it, which is I need to connect with this child. I need this child to um, – uh, be distracted, you know, while she's waiting for her parent and, you know. One of the things about this version as well is that I think it really respects some of the big topics that Dickens was always addressing in his pieces. Um, the conditions mm -hmm. of children and child laborers at the time, um, the fact that children were often just abandoned because families just couldn't afford, you know, to have those those children. And this piece starts with a child who thinks that they might have been abandoned here at this, this library. And so all of those stakes, all of what it means to be a, a child who is living in, in poverty and working, you know, the docks in this case, um, is uh, honored in this version of the story, which I think also really goes to the heart of a lot of what uh, Charles Dickens was dealing with in many of his pieces, as well as, I mean, he, he brings up the idea of the children want an ignorance in this. And um, uh, so one of the things that I like about this version also really ex expresses that the librarian is aware of those same needs and those same things that were driving Charles Dickens in his writing. Do you think there's anybody who's in the audience 
who's never been exposed to Christmas carols, never read it, never seen any of the versions that either you have done or George C. Scott or the Muppets or Jonathan Winters? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I have I have talked to, uh, I think it was in our first preview, which, um, you know, this show is off subscription, which means that everyone who is coming, um, almost everyone, is pretty new to Theater Squared, which, of course, we love. Right. Um, some of them are really brand new to theater. Um, and, yeah, in some cases, brand, brand new to the story, especially some of the younger people. Um, they may have, they know, they've heard the word Scrooge. They don't really know the story. You know, the, on the other hand, so I was really worried also because I was worried. I saw a lot of kids. Right. And I'm always conscious of that. It's a, it's a complicated story. You know, it's, it's a, uh, incredibly, wonderfully dramatic for kids. There's a lot of fun for kids, but also it's deep. And, um, and so I, I also asked a lot of families with kids. I'd go right to the kids and say, so what do you know about the story? Oh, we've seen it. Oh, we watched the movie the other night. Oh, we watched, we've seen the Muppet, Muppets movie, you know, mm-hmm. so. Um, but yeah, there's, there are a few people who have never. I love that. Never, Yeah, me too. As well, there are some people who have never, who might know the story, but they've never been to the theater before, right. mm-hmm. and they've never seen it in play form. And so being able to embody all of those things, I mean, it really brings you more than the words, because the actor is very busy supplying all of the stuff that brought that character to where they are in this specific moment. And so you get so much more information through the interpretation of the director and the actor who is playing any given role. Amy Herzberg and Bob Ford adapted Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol for the stage for Theater Squared. That production continues at Theater Squared in downtown Fayetteville tonight through Christmas Eve. You can find a full schedule of performance dates and times at theater2.org. And we have more Christmas drama ahead this hour. A new radio theater company is producing a night of holiday audio in front of a live audience Thursday and Friday nights in Eureka Springs. We'll learn more about that in about 10 minutes on today's show. KUAF continues to do what public media has done for decades, bringing people together to help make sense of the world. KUAF is an essential public good that's freely available to everyone. Our commitment is to the truth, democracy, and building a more informed and enlightened public. KUAF doesn't provide news to make a profit. We ask for your support so that you and everyone in our community can hear the news regardless of how much money they have. No paywall here. If you didn't get the chance to give during our season of giving on-air fundraiser this last week, please, it's not too late yet. Make your gift at supportkuaf.com. Thank you to everyone who contributes to Public Radio, KUAF, and Ozarks at Large. As Rachel just said, we do appreciate it. This is Ozarks at Large. Independent bookstores are having a moment across the region. In the past few years, booksellers have opened doors in Bentonville, Fort Smith, Rogers, Tahlequah, Tommytown, and Fayetteville, at least. Pearl's Books, just off of the Fayetteville Square, is one of those relatively new stores. Lee and Daniel Jordan, owners of Pearl's, recently came to the Furman Gardner Performance Studio at KUAF to talk with Randy Wilburn, host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. The full discussion covers why Lee and Daniel decided to open a bookstore with no personal small business ownership experience, what opening a business during the pandemic was like, how they support local authors, and why the store is named Pearls. In this edited excerpt from the episode, we'll hear why they thought Fayetteville was a good location for an independent bookstore. We knew that Fayetteville 
had a need for an independent bookstore mm-hmm. and for a local spot. The community here in Fayetteville is very supportive of small businesses, of local businesses. And so, you know, if we were in another town or another city, that would have been a different consideration for us. But we knew the type of town Fayetteville is and the type of town we wanted to live in. It's right. the type of town that has an independent bookstore. And so, yeah. And, and I think also, like Leah said earlier, Nightbird closing really did feel like there was a hole in the, in Fayetteville. It wasn't the same, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, I, I think for us, it never really was like, oh, well, we can't open because of Amazon. I think Amazon kind of is doing its own thing. And sure, there are competitors for sure. But we know that that people crave and need small local businesses. And I think just the personal touch that Amazon doesn't offer. Yeah. You know, it's an algorithm. And so an algorithm will tell you what books to get. But when you come to Pearls, we're going to ask you what you like to read and why you like to read it. And there's just this personal aspect that you can't get through a computer screen. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that because we'll have people say, like, I could never pay full price for a book because we just charge you what's on the back of the cover. But Amazon, because they're such a huge company, they can undercut the prices of books and not they lose money on books because they know customers are going to buy other other things. Products. Yeah. And so Daniel and I live in Fayetteville. Our kids go to the public schools here. We spend our money here, and so we're going to keep your money in the community. And so I think there are a lot of people that do value that and would rather pay more for the service, and the, even though it's the same product yeah. that you're getting. Yeah. So I also want to add that, you know, coming out, well, you know, when we were planning the store in February of 2021, there were several different points along the way before we opened, which was October 2021. There were several different points along the way where we thought, oh, maybe the pandemic will be over, Um, (laughs) you know, by the time we open. This will be great. Obviously, that didn't happen. Little did you know. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I think we also kind of knew that people were going to crave human connection as opposed to ordering everything on their screens like they have been for the past year or so during the pandemic. So I think that's something, too, that we offer. Like, you know, we have handwritten note cards that recommend books. As well as just the conversations that we have with folks in the store, it's not something that you can get online. So yeah, yeah. you know, and I, and I think about it, it's like kind of some of the one of the thing that's I don't think Amazon can replicate is the serendipity of walking into a bookstore yeah. and just finding something that you wouldn't have been searching for at all, mm-hmm. right? The algorithm just doesn't serve right. that up to you. Yeah. You know, it's like here is here is a book you should read while I'm looking for you know some other item that has nothing to do with books. When you walk into a bookstore in the same vein of of the way that you walk into a library and if a collection is properly set up, and that's one of the reasons why I love going into the Fayetteville Public Libraries, because every time I go in there, there's always something new. And I'm like, oh, what is this? You know, and I'm one of those people that sometimes is just attracted to book covers. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole art behind that, you know, a proper book cover and the way that it looks. And but I'd be curious to understand what you guys have found just in the last two years of having Pearl's books open. What is the feedback that you're getting from people about why they are coming into a bookstore and what what are their biggest their biggest takeaways? You know, I think one of the coolest things that happens, Pearl's, is 
multiple times a week for sure. I will watch people walk into the store and say to themselves or to their friends, wow, or oh my gosh, you know, just some kind of sense of awe. And that's something that we pride ourselves on. Like we, our walls are painted a really deep, dark green and we have floor to ceiling bookshelves. And so we tried to create this very warm and beautiful space so that when people walk in, they know that they want to come back. And I think that that's something that has just been really fun to see and something that we want to continue to cultivate, you know, create in the space. I love that. What about one of the things that I would imagine that you guys probably excel in that maybe even Amazon struggles with is some of those hard to find books. How has that worked out for you in terms of, and I'm thinking just in my head, right? So I'll I'll tell you a quick story. Robert Carroll wrote a book called The Power Broker. Mm Mm-hmm. That book is so hard to find, although it's one of the top 100 books ever written Mm -hmm. and you can't find it. I mean, like I had to I was twisting David Johnson's arm to say, can Mm -hmm. you guys order this book? And they finally got a copy in. Shout out to the Fayetteville Public Library staff. I love you guys. But, you know, I find that there are some books that I want to get that are really hard to find. Mm -hmm. How do you guys navigate those waters and I would assume that people come to you for certain books that they know they just can't get anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, that definitely happens. We, you know, when we first started out, we had a relationship primarily with a distributor of books. And now we've expanded and have accounts with with publishers directly. That gives us a lot more access to books. So the longer we're open, the more we get our feet under us, we're able to like branch out and do those kinds of things to get to get even more of those books. But something that you kind of mentioned earlier is that's important to us is finding those books that you don't even know that you want to have. And a lot of those books that are really important to us are the local books, books by local authors, books about the region, the Ozarks in general. And those kinds of books you're not going to really find in a lot of other places Mm -hmm. outside of the state. And so... We really have a, we pride ourselves on our relationship with the U of A press as well mm-hmm. and getting those books in the store as soon as they're released. Bell Point Press also in Fort Smith, Arkansas. So there's a lot of like small presses that are opening up, like Bell Point opened up after we did. I think it was, they just celebrated a year time, yeah. anniversary, but finding those books that are hyper local or hyper specific that people don't really know that they want to learn more about. And then they find it and they're like, oh, wow, this is awesome. In addition to pearls, Mm -hmm. which we're going to put right at the top, (laughs) where else can people find independent bookstores here in Northwest Arkansas? Okay. So we'll go from North to South. Okay. All right. That's perfect. (laughs) Uh, So up in Bentonville, 8th Street Market is Two Friends Books. Okay. And they actually met with us before we opened and just kind of talked to us about the process of opening. And that I feel like is a really good example of the collaboration amongst the community in Northwest Arkansas. And then also in Bentonville, and then they also have a Taunty Town location is Once Upon a Time Books. And so then there's Masli Britos in Springdale. Okay. The parlor room. The parlor room is opening on Friday. This Friday. In Rogers. Yeah, in Rogers, downtown Rogers. Uh-huh. Parlor room. Okay. And then Dixon Street Books yes. in Fayetteville does used as well. So and, you have and some all options. All of them have opened except for Dixon Street within the past, 
I don't know, five, five years. years. Yeah, years. right. Dixon yeah. Street's been around for a while. Dixon Street's yeah. been around since the 70s. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm pretty so, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can hear the complete conversation with Lee and Daniel Jordan, owners of Pearl's Books, and host Randy Wilburn on the latest episode of his I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find that podcast wherever you already get podcasts, as well as at KUAF.com and at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. And one other note, the conversation was recorded a few weeks ago, and the new bookstore in Rogers that was mentioned, The Parlor Room, is now open. I actually stepped inside and picked up Ozark Dogs by Eli Craner there this weekend. This is Ozarks at Large. Eureka Springs Theater Company is bringing live theater to Eureka for a pair of holiday-themed nights, and their performances later this week are near and dear to our hearts at Ozarks at Large Radio Theater. Thursday and Friday evenings at Base Camp Event Venue, close to a dozen performers will help bring four holiday radio scripts to life in front of an audience. Last week, I sat down with Lisa Tricomi, the artistic director for Eureka Springs Theater Company, and Sean Cross, one of the actors in the company. We met at Brews in downtown Eureka. Lisa, who is directing this week's production, says she was part of radio theater in St. Petersburg, Florida for 10 years before moving to Eureka a year and a half ago. For me, I'm also a performer and a director, so for me, uh, besides the fact that it's just a bunch of fun and a reason to get together with people, it's a really low commitment thing for an actor, so you put in about one rehearsal, you go and you perform that night, and then you're done, so you get a little acting fix as an actor, Um, but just also uh, the idea of just the community coming together and doing something different. It's not quite a play, so that fourth wall isn't really there. And I feel like the audience feels more a part of and included in that way because they're part of it. Um, So, yeah, I have done in the past live radio broadcasts of radio theater. And the way that I do it, there's not costumes, there's no bits, there's no props, there's sound effects, that's it. It's just straight reading. But there's something about doing it live where the audience is also a character because they're responding to, and and that's really fun. And that would be something that if we could get something like that going here, that would be a lot of fun. Actor Sean Cross grew up in Eureka, but she's been gone for some time acting before she returned to Eureka Springs in March. She says this week's radio plays are perfect for her to get back to acting and inject energy into a post-pandemic Eureka arts environment. Just bring back that joy of live performance in a room, the collaboration of the audience and the actors. I think it's a really smart way to do it so that it's just that essential piece before we get into like bigger production. So I'm just was looking for something to do and found Lisa and so I'm really glad to be part of it. Lisa Tricomi says this week's first venture into radio theater will be a simple affair. Microphones, music stands, and actors. And there will be sound effects, as you might expect in radio theater, just not fully live sound effects or Foley effects just yet. Something that you build. It's not just something you just pop into, you know, like, hey, there's the Foley table and there's all these great sound effects. So it's if this takes off and if we get a good uh, response, I think this is something we can grow. I would love to do it monthly, once a month, and start to grow an audience and start to really expand what you do see as an audience member. Up first, 
It is December, after all, are four, about ten minutes each, short holiday plays from the New Play Exchange, a clearinghouse for new playwrights and creators. One is about a deflated, um, inflatable Santa and his friends that are trying to get figure out what happened to him. Um, one is takes place at a funeral, and it's about a um, widow's sort of... She's not sad that her husband has passed, so she's uh, going to venture into a new life. Sean Cross's acting career includes stage productions of Chekhov and Shakespeare in Chicago, film and network television, but she says this will be the first time she's participated in this kind of theater. And she's excited about the straightforward approach Eureka Springs Theater Company is bringing to the production and the role that the audience's imagination will fill. We find that all the time, right? Sometimes the less information you're given visually, the more information you're going to provide for yourself, right? And so if you just have the words, I mean, think about Shakespeare. He was really just painting pictures with his words. There weren't set pieces and grand elaborate effects and things. And so his words were your fodder to paint your your uh, imaginary scenario. So yeah, that leaves a lot of room for the audience members to do that. And that's a little more fun sometimes than having it all spelled out for you. That's lovely. And she says she's also thrilled that the Eureka Springs Theater Company will be able to give actors in the area a chance to perform. There's a call from locals for performing yeah. arts. This, uh, when I was young in this town, there were the Eureka Players, and um, you know, at that time, Eureka Springs High School did not have a drama uh, department, and that's all I wanted to do. So I was really grateful to have the Eureka Springs Players, and I did shows growing up with them. Um, and it's just really a, a piece that's missing from this town that really should. It's already such an artistic mecca, but it's it's lacking in the performing arts right now. So that's what makes me excited about this new collaboration and what might happen, what might grow out of it. The radio plays produced in front of an audience can be seen Thursday and Friday nights at Base Camp Event Space on Passion Play Road in Eureka Springs. Doors will open at 6. Performances begin at 7. Pearl Brick will be on hand to provide music. Food will be available for purchase. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at Eventbrite. Just search for an evening of live radio theater. You can find more information as well on Facebook. Lisa Tricomi and Sean Cross talked with me at Brews in downtown Eureka Springs last week. This is Ozarks at Large. The KUAF Giving Tree, now for over a decade working to provide necessary items and support for our area nonprofits, is excited to announce this year's beneficiary, the Yvonne Richardson Community Center. The YRCC is committed to shaping today's youth for tomorrow's challenges by providing recreational, educational, and social opportunities. In short, they're focused on providing accessibility and a place to evolve. The center prides itself on existing as a hub within the community to increase the level of impact gained from those they serve. Throughout the holidays, you'll learn more about the center and its needs, including pre-packaged snacks, sports equipment, coloring, and activity books, and more. Listen for information on the Community Spotlight Series, The Giving Tree, and KUAF Public Radio. Your voice matters. Oh, and we had some holiday cheer last night in the Furman Gardner Performance Studio at KUAF. Eleven amazing musicians spent more than an hour playing some of their favorite holiday songs last night. There were guitars, a bass, clarinet, banjo, mandolin. We heard the Mary Baker Rumsey Steinway piano, even some jingle bells. We'll hear those songs on our Friday, December 22nd edition of Ozarks at Large, as well 
as the Sunday, December 24th, Christmas Eve morning version of Weekend Ozarks at Large. And one of the musicians who participated last night, Patty Steele, wanted to make sure that we all knew about a pretty special musical opportunity that's taking place in Fayetteville tomorrow night. Well, we are having a major uh, musician coming through town who has not played here since COVID, or maybe pre-COVID, I don't know how many years, but Mike Dillon, who's an amazing percussionist, is coming to George's, and um, he's not played in a very long time, but he used to frequent here at JR's and like Chester's and like a lot of those old venues and George's, of course, but this Wednesday... Uh, Patty Still Band will be opening for Mike Dillon and he'll bring Brian Haas, a local from Tulsa and another drummer friend of his I'm not, I can't remember his name but uh, we'll share the stage together and hopefully we'll get Mike to jam with us and then Mike's going to plan to have me jam with him so really excited he's literally my hero I've been watching and following this guy for more than 20 years and he's one of those guys who's been through it all and is still doing it and he's in his upper ages you know but he doesn't act his age <laughs> he acts like he's a 20 year old and the guy needs all the love and support we can give him he's one of those who's put his time in he's earned it he travels with Les Claypool's side projects like Flying Frog Brigade he just was on tour in October with them before that he was opening for Clutch with his band and then uh, he goes on tour with Ani DeFranco and all these huge names like Indigo Girls and stuff and I just want to make sure that people know who he is that's Patty Steele, and you'll hear Patty and 10 of her musical friends next week on our holiday edition of Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, more than 50 original works of art from the Benton County based Ben Edwards will be up for auction. Any unsold pieces will be incinerated on site. More about the concept, the auction, and the artist tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Kyle, if you were to do some artwork. <laughs> Would you hope that whatever didn't sell would be incinerated on site? I think if I did artwork, the people I was trying to sell it to would buy it and <laughs> incinerate it. That's an interesting. I can't wait to hear this oh, story. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth and Randy Wilburn. Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. If you ever miss a story or full episode of Ozarks at Large, you can head over to ozarksatlarge.com to find out what you've missed. Kyle, in eighth grade, I was in an art class, and I was under the impression that this mandatory art class was one that you got graded on effort and not skill. <laughs> I was wrong. I got my first ever C in art class well, in eighth grade. I, I had a C before then, so <laughs> and not in art. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net.